Hey, everybody. Hope you're having a great day. We are chatting with a brilliant mind today. We've got Earl Gray Anderson on the show. This guy's a musician. He's a nurse. Uh, he is a state director for MUFON. He's an experiencer. His mom worked for some top secret stuff for the government. Like, it seems no matter which rabbit hole we want to go down today, we're not going to be hurting for choice, Jay. I don't think so. He's uh, definitely an intelligent man, like you said. Like, and, and it's a pattern, isn't it, Louis? That, you know, it's always intelligent people that our contactees or, or researchers it's not the the way they used to do it back in the 80s where they would show like some slack jaw yokel in the back yeah. field no sign of saw an alien it's actually really intelligent people and it would and, make sense too if you want to come and abduct our people you want the brightest the biggest and best right you're not going to come for the the lesser of the species you're going to come for the best that this don't go for the has. runt you go for the the top of the list, yeah. right? yeah and it, you know these high name high profile guys a lot of them are the most humble people that we can talk to. The guys that know the most are the most humbled by the experience. It's the ones that think they know it all and they're the quote unquote messiahs, messiahs of disclosure. Those are the people you got to watch. And we know who they are. We see their shows too. We read all the same stuff on UFO Twitter that you guys do. We just, we keep to ourselves. We do our own thing. We keep it fact-based. So let's jump down the rabbit hole today, Day, um, Jay. We got lots to ask. And uh, we'll run our music here. We'll be right back with Mr. Earl Gray Anderson right here on UAP Studies Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of UAP Studies Podcast. My name is Louis Borges. Joining me as always, my best buddy, Jason Gilmet. Hey, another weekend that we get to talk UAPs and UFOs with legends in the field and great researchers. I, you know, we're so spoiled we get to do this, Louis. Absolutely. We kind of take it for granted, but it's just like, yeah, let's just get the state director for Southern California here from MUFON. Sure, we know him. We can get him on the show and... We, uh, we are very uh, uh, blessed to have uh, Earl Gray with us today. As I mentioned, he is the MUFON State Director for Southern California, uh, has appeared on numerous TV, radio, film. Uh, in fact, he was on a recent Ancient Aliens episode. Uh, he is a former vocational nurse as well, from what I read. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's also a published musician. He's got like three CD albums to his credit. So guy with many talents. He's got some cool stuff in the background I want to ask him about later in the show too. So, But first, uh, welcome to the show, Earl. It's great to have you, brother. Thank you. I'm 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 happy to be here, you guys. Yeah, we are uh, always the uh, MUFON friendly. We have lots of MUFON people on here, and they mm -hmm. all tell us different things. And everyone has still their own individual experience, even while doing the same collective things. And that's pretty cool. So, uh, for those who don't know you, I mean, you're pretty busy. You're doing three, four shows a week sometimes in various channels and podcasts, and you're like the traveling Earl Grey show. Uh, <laughs> but tell us a bit about yourself and what got you into the whole world of ufology. Mm. You want you want the origin story right Let's up have front, it, huh? Yeah, yeah, the Peter All Parker right. version. The, the, we get right into it. We'll, we don't dance we'll, around the table we'll, here. This we'll is we'll give you the everything to bagel, the full Monty of ufology <laughs> here. Um, well, I, I we were talking a little bit about this before we went on air. Um, my mom, uh, back in the 1950s, she worked for Howard Hughes as one of his secretaries. Um, she worked at the, the old Sepulveda uh, facility which was the, uh, it, it was Hughes Aircraft. The, he had the movie studio and he had other various uh, offices. But 
but this was, uh, he was usually there. He had an office that was next to my mom's, but they, they would communicate over an intercom system because uh, he was a germaphobe. All that stuff in the movie, The Aviator, that was true. And that was that period of time. Um, but he trusted my mom for some reason. Uh, a lot of the secretaries that he got, he would, he would tend to hire Mormons or people that didn't drink, smoke, or, you know, he, felt, he wanted people that he could trust. And my mom had a background in law enforcement from back when she was a, a, a girl in, in Iowa. Muscatine, Iowa is where she grew up. Um, and she, uh, they deputized her more or less. So they had somebody to put people into the drunk tank over the weekend. So that was my mom's first real job. And, you know, she was, uh, I think she was about 18. I think she was, I mean, she would have had to have been, I think, to be deputized. Yeah. But um, I think that that helped her get a foot in the door there. And, and it was no, this was no news. I mean, we all knew that mom worked for, for Hughes. And, and when she gave birth to me, she she retired and became, she thought she became a housewife. But she she later on went into uh, as a headhunter for the aerospace companies. But back in 1963, uh, I was five years old. Uh, I'll never forget this. Uh, we sat down for breakfast, our cheery little kitchenette in uh, Venice, California, and yellow paint on the walls. And it was just this bright room. And, and we sat down and my mom started talking to me as though she were talking to another adult. Um, she said, you know, son, when I was working for Howard Hughes, a really weird thing happened. Um, she said that they, they, took, they took me out to the middle of nowhere with a little security team, a couple of guys. And, uh, and all there was was just the desert and this concrete shack is what she called it, like a bunker. Um, and she wondered why they took her out to the middle of nowhere to look at a tool shack or, you know, where they kept their tractors. Yeah, it didn't look like much. So, but they unlocked this thing and they took her in and there is an elevator. And she said that, she got in the elevator. She thought maybe it would go down a floor or two. You know, well, it kept going down. And, and mom said, well, I felt butterflies in my stomach. I mean, this, it was going, she, she said that it went a mile below the, the desert floor. Wow. And she said when the doors opened that there was a little city down under the desert. A lot of scientists were working down there. Uh, they got around in golf carts. Um, she said that there were cafes. She mentioned one that had yellow umbrellas over the tables. And she laughed because she said, you don't, you don't need an umbrella in a cave. Uh, but she, you know, she, she then expressed, well, it was, it was to make people feel comfortable. You know, people were down there for long periods of time. And she mentioned that they had a barber shop and that they had a guy there that could do her hair for her. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. I know. And then she sort of addended this all with, oh, and by the way, son. So, you know, I was working with, you know, German rocket scientists. And there was a Redstone program was going on. She said, uh, but UFOs and extraterrestrial life is real. And, and we knew that way back then. And she said, the government knows that. But they're never going to tell everybody. They're, they're afraid of how people will react. That was the end of the conversation. And, and I, I, you know, I went off to kindergarten. Uh, so years later, I mean, I always had that, you know, I always had that 
and I, and I held on to that memory and I remember it still today. Like I remember, you know, having breakfast this morning. It's that, you know, those early memories just tend to cling to you. Um, so back in fourth grade, uh, we had a show and tell day. What do your parents do? And I went up there and I talked about my dad's landscaping business. And then I talked about my mom. I talked about the underground uh, city under the desert and UFOs are real. <laughs> oh, so the teacher called my mom in for a parent teacher conference. And I was out there playing on the swing sets. And, uh, it was maybe, I don't know. It seems like it was, you know, like four in the afternoon or something at this point. And my mom is driving me home and she looks really concerned. And she looked at me and she said, son, I'm not angry at you because I didn't tell you that you couldn't talk about this stuff. And then she looked at me and she said, how did you remember that? You were just a baby. And she was just looked horrified and she's trying to drive, you know, and still talk to me. And be, you know, rational and not angry about it, which I appreciate now that I'm older and I think about it. Um, so she said, you know, son, people don't know about cities under the desert. They don't know about UFOs and they don't know about aliens. And you can't talk about that. I, I, I thought that you were too young, that you would never remember what I told you. And but to my horror, you, you, you're, you're telling your class you know, and your teachers know. And she said, your mom could get into really bad trouble. Your mom could actually go to prison if you talk about this, son. And, um, and that laid the foundation for my interest in ufology. And, and you know, it was like from, from birth somehow. And I always, it seems like, you know, my mom said once, she said, you know, you were down there too, Earl. And I is like, what, what do you mean I was down there? She said, the little city under the desert, I was pregnant with you and, and I was, I was still working there. So technically you, you went down. <laughs> That's got the image to picture as well. Just a I, pregnant lady in a bunker underneath no. the desert where possibly aliens were kept or- <laughs> Some sort of technology. That, that's just crazy. What, what an image. She never mentioned working with aliens. You know, she just mentioned it was a real thing. And, you know, I tried to get her to talk more. I mean, 1977 after Star Wars, blah, she she one more time. I got disclosure. You know, she said, you have no idea how close to the truth that movie is. son. you know, the, the spaceships of different races, um, but they're never going to tell the public. They're afraid of how people are going to react. You know? And that. And then on her deathbed, you know, I mean, she wasn't going to tell me more and I was hoping she would, but she confirmed that what she told me was true. And so when she passed away, that was the end of my, the possibility of getting my, my golden ticket of disclosure. Uh, she, she was gone. She didn't leave any documents. So uh, that's, that's when I, you know, started, um, researching the phenomenon for myself, just kind of reading every bit of literature I get my hands on. And everybody was contradicting each other. And this guy says he's absolutely correct. And this guy says, no, that guy is wrong. And I'm so I decided the only way to do this is to go hands on. And the one name that kept popping up in from book to book to show to periodical was MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Um, and I 
you know, did a little study on them. They, they, when Project Blue Book closed their doors in 1969, MUFON opened theirs. And we've been doing the Air Force's job ever since. And that that's, quote, yeah. that's how I got here, you guys. I've seen <laughs> that on MUFON t-shirts before. I think that's awesome. I want that shirt. Yeah. I don't think they print that one anymore, but they sh- it's a good one. So from the early onset, your mom tells you quite a bombshell about reality, saying that, you know, she wasn't hiding anything from you, which is good. I mean, you know, when we had our kids were little, they're not so little now, but we were dead serious about never telling them that the tooth fairy was real, that Santa <laughs> Claus was real, right? Because you're, you're teaching that it's okay to believe in something and then have it cut off from you and not being real, right? My dad uh, so, was like that too. They oh, really? Love in Santa Claus or the, you know, tooth fairy or any of that. Yeah. Yeah. But just telling your kids honestly, look, this might be the reality that we're in. And it, it I wouldn't say indoctrinates, but it, it does allow the child to keep an open mind saying that this mm. is possibly real. This is this is an occurrence. And I think we, we teach our kids or condition our kids to stop looking at this stuff as, as valid and to dismiss it if it doesn't fit the mold of, of what society tells you is reality, right? So it's sure. good on your mom for, for being honest with you, right? I've had, uh, since I uh, joined MUFON, it hasn't been a regular occurrence, but a couple of times I've had like a couple people from the DOD. Uh, most recently, uh, and, and he is a, a guy, he is a DOD operative. And he told me, you know, Earl, I've read your mom's file. He said, your mom did not lie to you. And it's like, she has a file. <laughs> Can I read it? You know, it's like, no, no, you, you no. It's the fact, I shouldn't even be telling you that I read it. But he said, uh, no, your mom's file is sealed. But your mom didn't lie to you. And you can be very proud of your mom. She was a, a patriotic American and, and she was telling you the truth. <laughs> That's nice. wonderful confirmation. That is awesome. So you've researched over 900 cases with MUFON. Yep. What are some of the ones that really stand out in your mind as being phenomenal cases? Oh, wow. Um, I know that's a loaded question, but if you can think <laughs> of a couple. Uh, you know, there are certain cases that stick with you. We had one case where uh, there were two women that took sh- uh, chase in their little, uh, oh, you know, the little Austin Power British cars. What, what, what are those called? The mini? Again? Yeah, a Mini, a Mini Cooper. All right. Okay, gotcha. So it wasn't a race car, but they took chase after uh, two spherical red uh, UFOs that were traveling at quite a clip. Uh, this was in Azusa, California. Uh, Azusa is named, the, the name of Azusa is A to Z America, right? Azusa or USA, A to Z USA. So, but anyway, it's just kind of like this uh, all American town in the middle of San Bernardino area. So they took chase after these two orbs <laughs> and they got caught in a cul-de-sac and they couldn't follow them any further. So they frustratingly they had to stop the car there and they're they're sitting there watching these two red spheres doing what we call the falling leaf motion over the mountains there where they're just staying in place but they're kind of going back and forth up and down um and that that is a thing we, we see that it probably has something to do with electromagnetic propulsion um, well, anyhow, they're watching this and they think, well, you know, so much for, you know, chasing after the UFO, at least we can see it from a distance when everything lights up behind them. Wow. Everything lit up behind them. It was it was dusk. 
um, there was a park here. There was a, a residential area to their right. And uh, they turn around and about 200 feet away from them is a flying saucer hanging over a two story house. Uh, it was it was right over the tree. And uh, they said that it would blink in and out of existence. Like it was like had some kind of cloaking technology that was not working properly. So they would see like four spherical lights that would change colors and that would hang there. And then every couple of seconds, they would see the outline of, of a, of, of a uh, disc shaped craft. So they're watching this thing and, uh, and then it takes off takes off into the vanishing point now that is a pretty darn good though those were two witnesses they had nothing to gain nothing everything to lose you know by by you know by putting in a report about this what was interesting is five miles away there was a veteran air force guy who watched the whole thing from a distance completely unrelated to them nobody knew each other it was he and his wife he called her out to watch and they watched the say they watched the whole thing. They saw the two red, you know, the two red objects and the disc-shaped object. And he watched it take off and shoot off into the vanishing point. So that's uh, three really good witnesses. Two, well, actually four because of the the guy called his wife out. She saw the last bit of it. So four pairs of eyes on this thing, and uh, and one was. A who was a veteran uh, corpsman from the Air Force. That was a good case. For yeah. sure. sure. BuzzFeed a little, you know, video and sent a crew out uh, on that one. And, and that was one of my first unknowns. Uh, it was about six years ago, I think, around there. So Okay. And um, you also work with MUFON, uh, the uh, ERT, I believe is, yes. is how we pronounce it, uh, the Emergency Response uh, Or no, team. it's the Experiencer Resource Team. I got it totally backwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally backwards. Thank you. Not emergency, uh, but it can I, be. Yeah, and I see the John Mack books behind you. Um, oh. Obviously, this is a subject that we cover quite a bit as well as the uh, experiencers. And there's different experiences. Not everybody has the same experience. No. But have you found commonalities in the cases that you've investigated or the people that you work with what are the commonalities oh, yeah. that you have seen um you know people come from all manner of backgrounds but i i, I noticed that a lot of people who are either abductees or visitees contactees uh it seems to be hyper intelligent folks oftentimes people where the family has a military background like uh People like myself, uh, with with my mom and officialdom, uh, I, I have uh, another case that's an ongoing one that was from my hometown, and and uh, the the whole family they were all taken. They had about four hours, five hours of missing time after the house flooded with light. Uh, two two uh, fireball blue fireballs were hanging over their house. First one crashed into the horse pasture in front of their house. But their father was uh, actually, he was in the Air Force and he was part of uh, Project Blue Book. You know, he took, you know, the son and the, and the father, you know, they, the son saw the, the, the initial blue uh, fireball hit the, the horse pasture the night before. But the father hadn't, he, he just heard word of mouth. So they, uh, 
they they brought uh, the the two of them went out and they're standing there and they see these two blue fireballs just hovering over the house and at that point the father knew what was going on i mean they had been i guess targeted because of his background and apparently he worked in a deep underground base as well i mean they told a story about you know, take your kids to work day. And apparently the dad took them in an elevator to this giant computer complex under in White Sands, New Mexico, which, by the way, is where where uh, where Braun was was stationed when we brought him over with with Operation Paperclip. And my mom said that she, you know, Werner was a friend of hers. He'd he'd pop up on on Disney or something and mom would go, oh, that's that's my friend Werner. He's a charming man. It's like, well, isn't he, isn't he a Nazi? <laughs> you know? It's like, no, they forced him to do that, son. He, he just wanted to go to the moon. And, and uh, he's a, actually a good American and charming guy. So, I, you know, th- there's this connection. I think military is a powerful one. Um, other people, it, it just seems like the abduction <clears throat> visitation phenomenon runs with certain bloodlines. Uh, people with O negative, O positive blood uh, seem to be more commonly experiencers. Oh. O positive um, and O negative. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I I find that, you know, I mean, I'm an experiencer myself. It's a long story, and I don't know if you want me to go go down that path because this take is your episode, my friend. This is your but, episode. It's about but you. my wife and I, well, we we experienced what what we call our weird week, and it was when I first came to MUFON. Uh, I tried sort of my version of a CE five meditation. I I sent. I was very out of my naivete. I was sending out the message. You know, I want to meet you and you can abduct me and you can even take my DNA if you want. And that is what I sent out there is like, don't don't do that, kids. Not 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 something you yeah. want to do. or you might want to specify because I got the little gray guys and, and they're not talkative. They're all business. And they yeah, indeed, they, they, they took a lot of blood from me, which is DNA didn't get probed, <laughs> but um you know, I couldn't move. I mean, they, they used portal technology to get into our room. It flooded with light, like you hear all the time. And it's light that is not what we think of as light. There's some calming thing about it. It's a bluish tinge to it. Um, my wife thought that I had had a mental breakdown. I mean, when I could finally move and, and yell, that's what I was doing. It was 2, 2 a.m., and you know, her whole attitude was, was, oh, my God, you know, is this what I have to look forward to? You know, you joined this crazy UFO group. Um, and I just curled into a fetal position. I was confused. I didn't know who to talk to. And uh, two nights later, my wife is the one who has shaken me. And again, our room was flooded with light. It's flooded with light with no source. There's no... You know, the way photons work, you have to have a source and they, you know, whether they're waves or particles or wavicles, uh, they they don't just come out of nowhere. But these, it was as though it, it were its own source somehow. And she's shaking me awake and she started pacing next to the bed and she said, oh, my God, Earl, you need to tell your little friends 
I didn't explain that they were little, diminutive. She said, your little friends to leave us the, eh, <laughs> I won't use the word, alone. I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> and while I was horrified that my wife had had a similar experience to what I had had, um, at least now she knew I wasn't insane, which, which was, thank God, you know, um, Two nights after that, we both woke up to our room being flooded with light again, but this time it was also coming from above our house. Uh, we lived in downtown Burbank. I mean, it was not a rural area. Right. So, you know, whatever was going on, I, I don't know how many other people could see or, but uh, what I know is, is that our visitors are in control. And when they make your space into their space, the time is different sounds are different uh your thought processes are not even your own um they're in control um i mean i've had a close encounter with a craft since that happened and again it was a teachable moment i don't think they were doing an air show or you know circus act for my benefit they were trying to teach me something and and what they were trying to teach me was was that uh yeah, you, you're not going to grab your phone and take videos or photographs. You're not going to get, you know, you're not going to call the MUFON star team in and call the press and et cetera. What you're going to do is, is you're going to drive right past that miracle because the biggest worry in the world right now is, is that you might be late for work for a job that you don't really even like. So I was two miles away from this miracle that I saw. It was a V-shaped craft boxy looking hanging there defying gravity is this massive tonnage and there's no way to explain how it was there in the sky and it was 35 40 feet away from me and but i drove right past it because i was going to be late for work uh i was maybe a minute away from the 118 freeway out here which goes to this the, the town that i worked in when i came to my senses i pulled my car over um, this was like six o'clock in the morning. It wasn't at night. You know, I wasn't asleep. <laughs> it wasn't sleep paralysis. Um, and I just, I, I was ready to fire myself for MUFON, you know, because I didn't, I, I'm, a, I'm a trained observer and yet I didn't do any of the things that I was trained to do. At that point, I was chief investigator in Southern California. And I couldn't explain it except they're in control. And they were letting me know that. Um, since then, I mean, I, I, I didn't even put a report into MUFON. I was so embarrassed. Uh, but then our state director at the time, Jeff Krause, had a similar occurrence with his son where they watched a, a, a disc craft fly across the mountains of San Luis Obispo where they live. And I asked him, I said, well, did you get a photo? Did you get a video? Did you get, it's like none of the above. I, I can't explain it. I, I didn't do any of the things that I would, I would normally do, you know, crazy. So. We chatted, we chatted with Whitley Strieber and he said when he wrote mm -hmm. communion, he got 30,000 letters from people about oh. their experience and going through them all. He was explaining that, you know, this stereotypical abduction story 
very rarely, if ever happens. And mm -hmm. a lot of times it's just maybe how those people remembered things happening. He goes, usually it's this shoddy patchwork of, <laughs> I don't remember. Maybe that happened. I don't know why I said what I said mm -hmm. or thought what I thought basically to what you had just said that they are so far away from being in control of this. They don't even remember if it was a dream or real. It was yeah. that sort of delusional. So do you find that with um, the bulk of your MUFON cases that most of them are patchwork? They're not able to get a photo or video. It's not like what the debunkers think, you know, if this is happening all the time, where's all the pics? <laughs> Maybe exactly. you're not able to do that. So is that something that's a pattern within the investigations you've you've looked yeah, at? Yeah, it, it is actually. I mean, people, you know, may think that they're going to react a certain way. But when this happens, when you when you have a face to face with the ineffable, the, that which isn't supposed to exist, it, it, it causes ontological shock in a person. It's like it pulls your sense of reality out from under you like a rug. And you're left there kind of, you know, <laughs> in, yeah. in, in zero G and in, in no way to, you know, find something to hold on to. It's, it's you know, people wind up with uh, PTSD and, and, uh, and people do not react the way that they've been trained to. I, I, uh, but, you know, people react in meaningful ways once they look at it again from afar. Uh, usually it seems to me that there are teachable things going on here. Um, I mean, I had one case where a Marine was uh, literally abducted through the roof of Camp Pendleton from his bunk after a weird, weird day. I mean, he he saw a UFO. And his he this guy was kind of a motorhead. He he loved he had this hot rod, right? Like a Ford Galaxy, except it wasn't a Ford Galaxy. I, I have to look at his at his file, but but you get the idea. And he was watching like Tesla style electricity going through the the all the controls of his car on the radio and 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 so he had shut the car down he, he was afraid that it was gonna his car electrical system was gonna burn out and he was told telepathically that he needed to go back to his barracks you know this was his he was his chance to get out you know and he was he was off duty but it, it, this voice told him you're very very tired and you need to go back to your bunk and he did as he, he went there he said his, his uh, bunkmate was there. He said hello, and he, well, the, his bunkmate looked for him about 15 minutes later, and he was not there. It was like he had disappeared. And what happened was, was he said that he, uh, he had been taken through the roof. He could see the earth down below, and he was suddenly in the, inside of this disc-shaped craft. Um, these entities were brooding. They were like tall grays that he saw. Uh, brooding and threatening towards him. Uh, they told him that, you know, we've taken you and now you are under our control. And next thing we're going to do is we're going to take your soul. <laughs> he, instead of reacting violently, started praying. And he was praying, you know, this he had like a Christian background. And in fact, this was why he was on the road earlier that evening. He'd left a party because somebody brought out a Ouija board and that bothered him. 
So he left the party. So he thought that these were the, you know, demons and devils that he, they were tormenting him. And he thought it had something to do with the Ouija board coming out. But then he found out, no, that these, no, that wasn't what was going on, that these were ETs that had uh, taken him. Um, when he started reacting in a nonviolent way, and remember, this was a soldier. He'd been in Vietnam. He didn't, he said that he didn't have PTSD from Vietnam. And I, I believe him. I spoke with his whole family. I spoke with his kids and with his wife. It's like dad talks about this all the time. And he has PTSD, but not from fighting in Vietnam. It's from his encounter. Um, when he started praying and he started asking Jesus for compassion, you know, and to save him and rescue him, he suddenly found himself back in his barracks. He was kind of in this crouching there. He had black splotches and like red, you know, skin irritations all over his body. His bunkmate found him, uh, was perplexed, took him and, you know, made him shower. And, and, uh, but this followed this guy all these years, all these years. Now he started having dreams that were realer than dreams. This first episode was the only one where, where he was sort of attacked, you know, although they didn't actually hurt him, but they were threatening him. And I think that it was to see his reaction. They're very interested in our military. I think they're very interested in mankind's propensity to war with each other. And, and how could we be, you know, compassionate, empathic creatures and yet do this terrible thing to each other? And, and if we're going to go into outer space, I mean, I don't think that our visitors want Star Wars. They want, you know, Star Trek. Sure. You know, I guess if Captain Kirk wants to punch, uh, you know, Gorn in the nose or something, maybe that's all right. But but the war stuff. uh, -uh. And I think that that's part of what's going on. I, I a lot of visitees and abductees come from a military background. And I've heard the story over and over and over. Same thing. They're taken up. They see the earth below. Another guy, it was like energy beings of light that, that took him. And, and they showed him the, uh, like the volcanoes in the Pacific Rim exploding. They wanted to gather how he would react to that. Um, again, this guy didn't react with anger. He reacted with sadness and compassion and like prayerful thought. And he said that he felt enveloped by love from his entities. And, uh, and he was brought back and, and with this arcane, strange knowledge. This happened on an aircraft carrier, that guy. And it happened for a reason. Um, the Camp, Pen Camp Pendleton thing happened back in the, like 1968. Um, but those stories stick with you. And I, I see like a gist behind the way that they're treating uh, these, these uh, experiencers. It's, it's to find out what our motives are, to reveal those motives to ourselves. And I think that they're trying to change us, you know, that, that are, it's a great concern to them. Nuclear weapons, our warring natures, and the way that we treat the earth like a trash pile. Uh, those all three, I think, have, have accentuated us in their eyes. And I think this is why, why there's such, this, such an interest in us on their part. 
Yeah, we're a weird mix of you know. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, like you go on YouTube and you can see the most amazing things that a person is capable of doing, from singing to stunts mm. to like just wow videos of like I can't believe this person has this ability. Mm. And yet, there's this other aspect to our civilization, which is about destruction of another group of people. We've always been like that since the evolution of our species. Uh, we were talking with Avi Loeb, and he was mentioning that you know, most likely spacefaring entities that are able to visit other civilizations are peaceful species. Because if you're a violent species, you're most likely to destroy yourself yeah. or pick a fight with the first new species mm. that you discover, right? So it yes. made sense when you described that. Now, we were talking about like uh, the disorientation that you get when an alien abduction happens. And I was trying to search for a word that would describe it. Discombobulating is probably mm -hmm. the word that describes it word, the best, yeah. right? Exactly. You're just, you're taken out of it and nothing makes sense. Uh, your brain's trying to process new information and alien experience that it has no point of reference for. Um, and, and that's what makes it hard for these people is that they're trying to compartmentalize or make sense of something that oh. is, is way beyond our, our ability to comprehend. Um, Louis, you say it all the time. What, what's that quote that uh, you say? Yeah, it's not stranger than you think. It's stranger than you can, can think. think. Yes. So your brain just wants to make sense of it. That's the nature of your mind is just rank and file it somewhere. It's like pareidolia. Mm, yes. Jesus in the clouds <laughs> or something, right? Your brain Damn. just wants to latch on to the closest familiar thing it can so it can process it and keep you The alien right? in the woodwork. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or the the eyes and the mouth uh, on the back of every single car, right? You yeah, know? that's right. Yeah, you, you can find <laughs> anything you want. You, yeah, you try like to make sense car. out of everything. Like, yeah, there's a mouth there. There's mm -hmm. a couple eyes, but it's all you know about the yeah. uh, the observer. But I heard you mentioning um, the military bases, and I wanted to ask your thoughts on two things. One, sort of the sort of Robert Salas Malmstrom huh. type things where they're shutting down our nukes. Robert's a great friend. He, he yeah. was just at our MUFON meeting uh, last Sunday. Yeah, we've chatted with him a couple times up. as well. So, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's yeah. been happening. So there's validation on the military end. But, I mean, look at the recent Arrow hearings. And we've been talking mm. about witness testimony and experiencers. Nowhere in that in their dialogue is there space for that. It's mm. like if our sensor data didn't collect it, it didn't happen. We're not talking about it. Like that's like saying a murder didn't happen because the Navy didn't have sensors to capture it at the time. Like it's it's good infuriating analogy. to yeah. hear it. So as an experiencer, as a child of somebody who's worked with the military, you're kind of the perfect link. What do you think about hearing government dialogue that has no room for just anyone with a camera, as Kirkpatrick said? Yeah. Well, I think they're in a kind of a quandary because on one hand, the genie is out of the bottle. Pandora is out of the box. I mean, you know, when the tic tac and the go fast and, you know, the all those videos came out in 2017 and Leslie Keene wrote her article that was on the front page of the New York Times. Um, that was disclosure. I mean, I don't know what more people could ask for. I mean, if you got the president of the United States uh, like three years ago, half the country wouldn't have believed it. They would have said, I lying again. If they got if they had the president of the United States now go out and disclose, it'd say, oh, he's finally got, you know, his, his Alzheimer's symptoms are overcoming him. Um, we don't have a Walter Cronkite and people don't trust each other. So 
you know, I, I don't know who would be able to go and, and, and disclose. Maybe the United Nations, but, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that would work. Um, it seems like this one-on-one-on-one -on -one -on -one thing, you know, through the experience or phenomena is, is the way they're doing it. Slow, and I guess they're patient. But um, I'm not surprised with the way that the hearings went and the, the way that the Arrow guys are treating this. Uh, the, the, the one thing the Air Force does not want to tell the public is, is what they know, that this is real, uh, does things that we can't do. We are not sure who's flying these machines. They're underwater as well, messing with submarines, as well as in the air, messing with our highest technological jets that we have. And we can't protect you from it. There's nothing we can do. How, I mean, how are they, you know, mm -hmm. even going to have a budget if they go on record? This? They, they don't want to say that. They never did want to say it. They don't want to say it now. You know, back in 1952, after the White House flyover, you know, they convened the Robertson panel to and more or less figure out how to react to the American public. And it was with ridicule and by getting scientists to make fun of these people and act like they were, you know, if you report a UFO that's synonymous with reporting a leprechaun swimming in your bathtub, you know, <laughs> and they, they wanted to put, you know, and, and now, you know, I mean, okay, they want to rebrand everything. It was flying saucers. Okay. Is Kenneth Arnold's term, you know, that, the press picked up right away. They changed it to UFO. They don't want anybody to be thinking flying saucers. They want to control the conversation. Um, here we are again now, you know, it's UFO is we're not using that acronym anymore. Now it's UAP. And I wonder what next week, what, what new acronym acronym they're going to have for it. Cause the last thing they want to do is say, well, we've known about this for at least 75 years uh, we have downed materials and we can't figure out much about them. We, we don't know how these things fly. And we're sort of in the same position that we were 75 years ago uh, after Roswell. We can't say honestly that we can protect you from this. The good news is that if it's an alien invasion, they're doing a horrible job of it. I mean, you know, they've been here at least since the Roswell crash in 1947. I mean, if, if they wanted to take us over, I think they could have done it in a yeah. minutes, you know, Yeah. but they're not here to destroy us. I think obvious is correct. Um, you know, that was the same way Arthur C. Clarke felt about intelligence, that if you are an evil self-serving race, you're going to destroy yourself before you have a chance to destroy other cultures out there. I think the light year is our friend in that yeah. instance, you know? Yeah. And our species is unique because we create countries, you know, this, these imaginary lines that we say you can't cross. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it causes a lot of problems. I think the biggest problem with disclosure is the fact that we have governments for different countries. There's no unity in this problem. There's no global work really where everybody's saying, hey, we have a unified problem right now with these entities. Like UAP could be, you know, universal alien problem because that's exactly what it is. And it's hard to disclose this and investigate it, compartmentalizing it per country, right? So yeah. Russia has its own program. Mm -hmm. The United States has its own program. They're all keeping tight-lipped about it 
because it's always about military purposes. If we, Weaponization if, and money, always. And money. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it's huge How business. How can we use this in war? Yeah. And as soon as we share with the American people what we know, we're also sharing it with the foreign na we're, we're nationals. We're, we're sharing with Russia, with China. We're, 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 we're sharing with, pe with people that are not necessarily good actors. So... Right. I, I get their quandary. I understand it. Uh, and and do you interface. want the officialdom to disclose anyway? I mean, do you think they're the right yeah. guys to do it? The military? I don't think so. I mean, it's kind of shoot first, ask questions later. I think it's much better for disclosure to happen like this right now. This is disclosure right now, what we're doing. Yeah. People are watching this or listening to it, and it's going to make them think and think differently. And that's how it probably should be done you know and it, it may come from private sector too like avi Loeb's mm -hmm. galileo project yeah. we ask him similar questions about aero and he goes i don't care about the government he's like they don't want to um, declassify things yeah. that are man-made he's like it's military they're never going to do it yeah. stop asking them he's like i don't want any information on anything man-made he's like we have our own sensors mm. we collect our own data we have private funding Basically, if you detach from that government, they don't have oversight on your project. And it's kind of yes. like what they do with black budget stuff, right? You can't FOIA exactly. Below I can't, I can't get a FOIA. And once it goes private, it's gone. So, yeah. but if you use that in a good <laughs> sense, uh, you can actually help move this a little bit forward rather than do the same. I mean, it was Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book. Then it was UAP Task Force. The, you know, a tip arrow nids. It's, yeah. it, there's been a hundred of these things. They all do the same thing. And even in the last um, hearing, Kirkpatrick's basically saying, yeah, hopefully in a couple of years, you won't need another arrow. Like it'll be, we'll just be able to filter out the garbage and give it back to the same bodies <laughs> that have done a horrible job dealing horrible with this in the job. first place. Like this is going nowhere. And uh, I don't know why we get so upset and myself included, because we want to know, <laughs> But it's I'm done. I, I posted something on Facebook the other day. It's a meme of a guy. And I put the header as getting ready for the next arrow hearing. And he's putting Tabasco in his eyes. That's how I feel about it. Right. Like getting ready for meme. another, you know, that's pretty good. What do they call it? Nothing burger. That's the yeah, term that's burger. floating around Twitter nothing ever burger. since. Another yeah. nothing burger. Mm. For me, it was the statement of I want to make it somebody else's problem or I'm paraphrasing. Oh, God. Here. Yeah, he wants to like, turn UAP to oh. SEP. <laughs> yeah. And you know how angry Robert Solace is after all this when they claim that they have absolutely they have no information about what happened at the Malmstrom base in 1967. I mean, I'm sorry. You have a UFO that shoots a laser beam down into your ICBM uh you know pit and it's and it's turning it, it took 10 nuclear missiles offline boom 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 he watched the whole thing the guy up on top is screaming in the radio you know there's a, a ufo hovering shooting labor laser beams down the missiles i mean and they claim that they they didn't have any information about this so they didn't save anything it's yeah. like i got a bridge you know for you and Robert uh, testified like a month and a yeah. half ago. We know this because For we hours. reached out to him and he says, let me testify first. Then I may have more that I can discuss or maybe not discuss. Mm -hmm. So we know for a fact that he spoke to the arrow panel less than 60 days ago. So to yeah, just he did. say for hours, he said, yeah, for hours. And I'm pretty sure Kirkpatrick was also briefed by somebody on 
sort of reverse engineering projects that are yeah. happening or have happened. So to say that they're not in possession of any knowledge, and maybe it's just like me personally, I don't know. Well, you know damn well your boss and everybody else knows, but maybe they're trying to have that plausible deniability. And that's why the president doesn't really know everything they're supposed to either, because they have to be able to say, yeah. I genuinely didn't know, even if they suspect it is true. Right. I mean, they compartmentalize everything now, you know, and, and you get everybody gets like a little bit of the story, but not the whole story. And I think that my mom, when she was doing what she was doing, that she was in a unique position that they hadn't really figured out compartmentalization yet. So she was their stenographer for all these high, you know, boiling meetings with, you know, mucky mucks. And so she had to have a high security clearance. And that worked well for her, you know, because later on in life, she realized that she hated being a housewife and that she wanted to work again. And and she be, she uh, opened up a, a, an employment agency, but it was kind of a cover for what she was because what she was doing was was she was a headhunter for, you know, the various aerospace corporations. Um, and she would find them broom pushers up to the top scientists. And that, that's what she did. And I watched her do it. I mean, she got one of my friends out to a job. He had a, it was at Northrop. Uh, he was a math whiz. His mom was my old math teacher. I'm terrible at math, by the way. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> His mom gave me a D, I yeah. think, in her <laughs> class. But, but my mom sent him out because they had a problem. And, and when he got back, he was gone for a couple of weeks. Uh, I think that he might have just turned 18. Uh, he was older than me. And he comes back. He says he had a new car, first of all, and a wad of cash. And I asked him, well, what did what would you do? He said, I'll show you what your mom got me out to. He brought out like an old, like the old computer readout sheets that fold and the, the green and the black and the old the school red lines, so old yeah, school. Yeah. And he's going floop, 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 floop. And he had one number, the big old number uh, circled in a, a orange grease pencil. And it's like pre flare markers. Right. So grease pencil circle there. And he said, this stopped the wheels at Northrop for a couple of months and they were losing money and losing money and losing money. And, but he was able to look at that column of numbers and intuitively know which one was out of place. So my mom got people out for special interest projects like that, you know, as well as, you know, sci rocket scientists out to Raytheon Aerojet and all the major, you know, movers and shakers back then. If she hadn't had her top secret above top secret security clearance, she couldn't have done that. But this allowed her to continue her work. And, and she was happy when she was working. She's a miserable housewife. She hated it. You know, I feel bad for my dad in retrospect, <laughs> but he's the guy that fell in love with her, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I have so much respect and love for my mom. And she left this, this trail of breadcrumbs for me. You yeah. know, it's a blessing. I, you know, I love her, you know, and, and I'm as much in search of her and what she was doing as as I am uh, E.T. And, and what E.T. is doing here in our planet. So quick question for you. 1989, you have mm -hmm. a guy like Bob Lazar that comes out and says that in the middle of the <laughs> desert, right, uh, they're flying or testing UFOs. Uh, he yeah. put S4 and really, you know, him and George Knapp put S4 mm -hmm. and Area 51 on the map. 
and sure there's also evidence people say oh he has no evidence i'm like no he does because he brought people out in the middle of the desert on the side of the highway mm. they were even having parties at the end they were getting so cocky <laughs> they were on top of a winnebago yeah. having full parties taking pictures and videos of these crafts flying in the middle of nowhere every wednesday night at 7 p.m mm. because that was the best time that there would be no traffic on the highway um, when you hear something like that, you know, and, and I know like people have problems with his credibility in his school, but you hear that knowing your, your mom's recruiting. I know the guy that used that, to right? drop him off at work, uh, at college. Uh, there, there's, he, we had a mutual friend and he would take him to Caltech and drop him off and then pick him up. You'd have his books and schoolwork. So, you know, yeah. And the security guy from Caltech, uh, I know him, and and he says, yeah, we all knew Bob. He was, he, yeah, he was a student. So. Yeah, yeah, and, and maybe looking the wrong college or looking at MIT when Caltech. Yeah, and from the get go, for me, I mean, I remember that uh, watching that on TV for the first time when he was portraying himself as Dennis, which was the name of his handler that he hated. <laughs> uh, but you know, watching that, and I'm like. It, it, I remember my dad being like, Oh, it's true, it's true. They're true. like, My dad was a believer right away, mm. and I was like, Holy crap, this guy might be telling the truth. And that was probably one of the biggest bombshells, and something that is never mentioned in the Senate hearings. Like, everybody dismisses his testimony, even though he was on to something, right? Mm. They were up to something there. People have witnessed it along with him. And I know there's a big discredited uh, campaign against him that they were trying to erase his past, which was a lot easier to do back in the day yes. than it is now. So I think it should be mentioned, you know, more often that maybe he did. He was telling us the truth from the start. I know? agree. Yeah. I asked my mom about him. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know a whole lot about the UFO phenomenon while she was still alive because I wanted to hear it from her. But I did know about the Bob Lazar story, and I asked her, I said, so, Mom, did you, it sounds like one of your guys, did you ever get a guy who named Bob Lazar out to work? And she looked a little, like, she was a little PO'd at me, because <laughs> I'm doing it again. And she said, Bob Laser, that's not a name. And then she walked out. <laughs> so she wasn't willing to talk. Wow, but maybe your mom she was got classified. Yeah. <laughs> maybe she was the one. Yeah. Who knows? I want to ask you, Earl, in the world of high sure. strangeness, you have UFOs, you have beings, you have orbs, there's cryptids, like even Bigfoot or skinwalkers, mm -hmm. or and then you have sort of the world of paranormal and poltergeist and you know, shadow beings. So yeah, that's a skinwalker <laughs> cane. Is that what that yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very nice. If you have so, to use a cane, you better have a cool one. So there you go. So do you think all these things are somehow connected or are they just sort of different mm, realms yeah. that all kind of share space with us at the same time? I think that it's all the above probably, but I think it's kind of connected. Uh, it's not so much paranormal. We need to get rid of the word para and just expand our idea of what normal is. And I, I think that's what's happening here. You know, um, it's always been here with us, but we, again, you know, it's like paradilia and all that, you know, we, just love to, we want to explain everything and have it simple and, and just categorize it and yeah. put it in a file. And it's not like that. Um, and I, uh, whoever this other intelligence is, and I don't think it's just one, I think that it's various intelligences. I think that it's been here a long, long, long time. I mean, you know, Christopher Columbus talked about 
a, a lit object coming out of the ocean and following them, you know, on their way to the new world. Did not know that. Yeah, yeah. lantern yeah. he yes. called it. Because that's how he could make mm -hmm. sense of it was just an oil lamp coming out of yeah. the ocean. Oh, wow. Well, that didn't, <laughs> never heard that before. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Romans talked about flying shields, uh, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, you know, I mean, this goes way, way back. Goes to, you know, the same goes in Australia. They had lightning man who came from the sky, brought fire, brought civilization, brought hunting skills and language. Um, you know, the same thing through the Mesoamericas, up and down uh, from from Alaska all the way down to Argentina, it's all the same story that that the star people came. They taught us, uh, they taught us knowledge of hunting and, and agriculture, and uh, it, it's it's amazing. It's worldwide, you know, Africa as well. You know, aerial school. Yeah. What what a what a marvelous film, by the way. Yeah, that was yeah. Amazing. We interviewed guys, Randall Nickerson about that. Randall's film. wonderful. What a, what a great film. Yeah, Wonderful. it took him such a long time, and he had to basically yeah. like raise his own funds to continue the progression of the movies. Mm. It took him over 10 years to do it. And even the people in the movie, when they go back to the aerial school, they still have the same trauma they did as a kid. Yes. So it's it's hard to fake that kind of stuff, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. it was very just just a beautiful film. And and and, and John Max, you know, my my guy, I I. I, I have a feeling if he had lived, maybe I would be working with him or something because I, I feel the same way about everything. I, I don't think they're all space brothers, but I don't think that an alien invasion, I, you know, people tend to go one extreme or the other. And John kept a very clear mind about it. And he saw that, you know, both angles of this. And he was a, a compassionate, good person. And he asked great questions and he listened. Yeah. He was a compassionate listener. Yeah, he was a he's a, a pioneer. Him, Bud Hopkins, and uh, mm -hmm. even uh, Whitley uh, oh, are yeah. are pioneers in mm -hmm. the research of this phenomenon. You know, and the, the, sure. you teach uh, a course about mm -hmm. ufology, which is really great because we talk about it all the time. How it should be a university course or something like that. It and you actually teach that, right? <laughs> and um. Mm -hmm. So basically, do you teach the foundations of ufology, like from, yes. from uh, beginning to end, uh, how much we know? Could you talk a little bit about the course? Sure. Uh, it's at Otis College of Art and Design, uh, a beautiful school. Uh, their their uh, complex is the old IBM uh, complex. So the buildings are very futuristic. They look like the old computer punch cards, you know, right. and, and, uh, but it's a credited uh, class that I teach with uh, Dr. Heather Joseph Witham, who's a, uh, her, she has a doctorate, uh, she's a folklorist, but she believes that the UFO phenomena is very, very, very real, as do I. So I teach the course with kind of an overview of all of the high points of ufology from, you know, Dr. Hynek, Project Blue Book, uh, ancient aliens type stuff. Uh, historically. And then I also bring in the artistic elements. I'll have Greg Bishop come and, and speak to the class, who's an artist and, and who's uh, he, he, he's putting out the ufology tarot, which is this beautiful, beautiful work of art that, that is the history of ufology. You know, Whitley got a card. He, he insisted on having the fool card. Um, Jacques Vallée is the magician, the, the mage. He's holding a telescope instead of a wand. It's just 
and that and that's the way that I teach it. I try to make it relevant because it is an art college. So they'll have uh, written assignments, but they'll also have, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll turn in beautiful artwork. Um, I think this is the fourth semester that we've taught that's coming up now. They, they just, in fact, it looks like we're going to be doing two semesters a year now. Before it was just one, but it filled up the day that it, the, the day it was announced, the class filled up. So um, anyway, it's a new day in ufology when you get to teach an accredited course in the college uh, on this subject. And I put my heart into it and all my knowledge. And I give them my very best uh, name redacted cases. I'm not going to, you know, yeah. I'm very careful about personal information of my witnesses. But it's, if, it, if, if I could have taken that class when I first got interested in this, boy, I wish I could have, you yeah. know. <laughs> well said. Well, thank you, Earl. We're going to wrap it up here soon. Um, wow. I, I thank you for your time here. Louis, do you have any thank final you. questions for our yeah, guests? Yeah, Earl, where can people find out more about you if they want to study uh, or learn about the phenomenon sure. or just, you know, keep track of what you're working on? Where can people find out more? If you go to MUFON.com, M-U-F-O-N.com, uh, um, go to the ERT page. You can see my bio and, and information there. Um, if any of this sounds familiar to you, if you've seen a UFO or you've had contact, face-to-face -face contact with entities, if you go to MUFON.com, you can click either report a UFO or report an entity. And if you live in the Southern California or the, you know, the California region in general, um, I'll, prob I'll probably be assigned that case or I will assign it to one of my teammates. Uh, same goes for a UFO. If you see a light in the sky or if you see a freaking starship up there, you know, the, the starship enterprise, you can go and report that and we will take you seriously. Uh, scientific background of my teammates is wonderful, but the compassion runs. There's perfect balance. You know, my, I make sure that my teammates are all very compassionate, not judgmental and open-minded because every good UFO case has intentional absurdity in it. And it's like a signature line. And I think that it's intentional and it's, it's the way that our visitors think and the way that they want to present themselves. So it could be the craziest case in the world. I'm going to take you seriously because that's like the little autograph on the bottom of a Picasso. Yeah, um, if you want to get a hold of me, you can always email me at Earl Gray Anderson, Gray spelled with an E. Uh, Earl Gray Anderson at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook or LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as Earl Gray Anderson and uh, Facebook is Earl Gray. Awesome. Nice. Well, we appreciate your time, Earl. It's uh, great chatting with you. We could have probably done another hour if we, uh, we just kept yeah. her going. And uh, so we'll turn it over to our viewers right now. Let us know what you think of today's episode. Please like. And if you haven't already, subscribe to our channel. It does make a big difference. And we do appreciate it. And I can proudly say we're one of the few shows that respond to everybody. We have some angry fans that are like, how come so-and-so from this show never messages me back, but you and Jason always do? Because me and Jason take pride in that. And we hmm. will make sure whatever you send us, we'll reply. So you can check out our website as well, UAPstudiespodcast.com. Earl Gray Anderson, thank you, brother. Love chatting with you. Thank you so you much. It was my pleasure, you guys. Yeah, well, let's have you back on many times. I think we're sure. going to cover a I, lot I'd, of subjects. I'd love to. You guys are great. I had fun. Awesome. Thank you.